all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. and welcome back to season three episode two of professionally embarrassing we are going to go back to our usual order of play which is more of a deep dive into case law though i did put out a poll on instagram last week after our premiere episode and i know that some of you want more kind of quick snapshot case law rather than deep dives which we will definitely have a look at doing again but for now we're going to go back to the usual and the familiar Just a reminder, if you haven't already done it, to vote for us in the Family Law Awards for Family Law Commentator of the Year. The voting link is live. The details are in the show notes of our last episode, but we'll put it again in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to include your name and your contact details after voting so we can verify your vote. Right. Maddie, who was first last time? Do you want to kick us off with the case this time? Yep. Very happy to. I think it was you first last time. So, yes, I will start. So I am doing an international case this week. I'm not sure how many international cases we've done before. I think I might have talked about a Hague Convention case last year, which was a summary return where the mother was saying, I'm refusing to leave and the court allowed her to stay in England. And I wanted to do another one because I don't feel like we give them the requisite attention and they can be very interesting and very complex. So the one that I've picked this week is called S&A and it is in the High Court It's a first instance decision before Mr. Paul Hopkins listed in the judgment as QC, but is now, of course, Casey, sitting as a deputy high court judge. And it concerns a child called S in the judgment, who is a girl aged four and a half years old at the time of judgment. G is the child's father and A is the child's mother, but I'm just going to call them mother and father for simplicity. It's the father's application for a summary return, not pursuant to the Hague Convention, but pursuant to the court's inherent jurisdiction, seeking a summary return to Pakistan, hence why it's not a Hague Convention case. And he says essentially that the mother removed the child from Pakistan to Italy with his consent, but then moved the child from Italy to England without his consent, which led to essentially, if it was a Hague Convention case, what we would call a wrongful retention in the UK. So he makes his application in the UK for a return to Pakistan for all of the welfare issues and the problems to be determined in Pakistan rather than in London. So the court says in outline, the father says the child's been living with him and the mother in Pakistan, was removed from Italy to England in September 2020 without his knowledge or agreement. It was his case that the removal to England amounted to an abduction. If this had been a hate convention case, it would have been his submission that the removal to England was wrongful and that the child's habitual residence has not changed from Pakistan at the time of his subsequent application. He seeks the child's summary return to Pakistan. In the event that the application fails, he would continue to seek an order for the child to return to Pakistan following a full welfare evaluation if he doesn't get summary return. 
And as part of that case, he's seeking interim direct contact with the child in England. The mother's case is that the father agreed to the child's move to England from Italy. Once again, if this had been a hate convention case, it would have been her submission that the removal to England was not wrongful, to frame it in language that we might better understand. Furthermore, it would also have been her submission that the child's habitual residence had changed from Italy to England at the time of the father's application. She disputes that the child has ever been habitually resident in Pakistan. She opposes the child's summary return. In the event that her primary case fails, she's confirmed she would return to Pakistan with the child. So if the summary return fails, she said, OK, yes, I will go back. Um, but thereafter, she would want an order that she can come back to England in Pakistan. So it's accepted by mother to some extent that the full welfare evaluation will take place in Pakistan. Now, the reason I picked this case is there's two really interesting discussions contained within it. The first is about authority on the return of children to non-convention countries. So I don't know if this is something that many of you will have come across in your practices. It's still relatively rare. I think Hague Convention cases, because of the number of countries that the Hague Convention applies to, are still more common. But there are a number of very large non-Hague Convention countries, such as India and Pakistan, that are often subject to these kind of applications under the inherent jurisdiction. So it's always worth knowing the law on them. And I'm not sure it's something we've discussed before. So the leading authority remains Reed as I'm sure you all know. It's a 2005 House of Lords case. And in Reed Baroness Hale, as was, set out the principles which apply to the applications for a summary of return under the inherent jurisdiction. In outline, the principles can be summarised as follows. A. Any court which is determining any question with respect to the upbringing of a child has a statutory duty to have regard to the welfare of the child as its paramount consideration. No shock there. In non-convention cases, the court must act in accordance with the welfare needs of the particular child. B. There is no basis for the principles of the Hague Convention to be extended to countries which are not parties to that convention. So you don't get to use the Hague Convention as parallel legislation in these cases. They didn't sign up to it. It doesn't apply. It's separate law. C. A power did remain in accordance with the welfare principle to order the immediate return of a child to foreign jurisdiction without conducting a full investigation of the merits. So the court has jurisdiction to make this order. That's important to remember. D. A trial judge had to make a choice having regard to the welfare principle between a summary return or a more detailed consideration of the merits of the party's dispute in this jurisdiction. So the court has two options here. And as you know, dad's case is a summary return. If not summary return, then no full welfare evaluation. That should be done in Pakistan. Mum's case is no summary return, but the full welfare evaluation, if you're going to do it, should be done in Pakistan. So we're only looking at the first limb of that particular jurisdiction. E, in making the above choice, the focus must be on the individual child and the particular circumstances of the case. Again, no shock there. I think that's in every single authority we've ever quoted. And F, it is wrong to say that there should be a strong presumption that it is highly likely to be in the best interest of the child subject to an unauthorised removal or retention to be returned to his country of habitual residence so that any issues which remain can be decided there. The most that can be said is that the judge may find it convenient to start from that proposition. So a bit like 50-50 in financial remedies, this is a starting point. It's not a presumption that it would be in the child's best interest to be returned to their country of habitual residence. But that presumption can be displaced by welfare and a holistic evaluation of all the circumstances. So the court is then looking at the potential variable factors that will be relevant to the court's determination of any application for the child's summary return. And of course, this bleeds into the law around habitual residence, which if you're not familiar with, I'm going to give you a quick crash course on because it's always worth knowing. And sometimes it, people get a bit scared of habitual residence, but I don't think there's anything to be scared of. It's, it's pretty straightforward. But if we skip forward in the judgment a little bit, there's then a discussion, and this is the second reason why it's good to read, about the definition of habitual residence. 
I feel like habitual residence is one of those things like welfare that as a family lawyer, you just kind of understand and you have a better idea about it as you do more cases about it. But for those of you who might be new, for those who are students, for those who've not done this area of law, there is a really good discussion about habitual residence within this judgment. And so what the court says is this, that habitual residence is an ongoing consideration by the court, summarised at paragraph 17 of the fundamental principles of re-be a minor habitual residence, which is the 2016 High Court decision of Mr Justice Hayden. And he says, the habitual residence of a child corresponds to the place which reflects some degree of integration by the child in a social and family environment. The test is essentially a factual one, which should not be overlaid with legal subrules or glosses. It must be emphasised that the factual inquiry must be centred throughout on the circumstances of the child's life that is most likely to illuminate his habitual residence. Now, there's obviously 17 points here, so I'm not going to take you through all of them. But as an example, it's highly unusual for a child to have no habitual residence. Usually a child will lose a pre-existing habitual residence at the same time as gaining a new one. Parental intention is relevant to the assessment, but is not determinative. A child will usually, but not necessarily, have the same habitual residence as the parent who cares for him or her. The relevant question is whether a child has achieved some degree of integration in social and familial environment. It is not necessary for a child to be fully integrated before becoming habitually resident. And again, habitual residence is a question of fact focused upon the situation of the child. So as an example, you'd be looking at things like schooling. How many family members live in the jurisdiction? Do they have community ties? Does the caring parent have a history of being from there? Is the caring parent a national of that country? Is the child a national of that country? You're looking at all of these different things on a factual basis to look at what makes a child habitually resident in what country. And of course, the court has to conduct that analysis when making declarations of habitual residence, which are sometimes asked for under the inherent jurisdiction. The court goes on to make it clear that the question of habitual residence is to be determined by references to all circumstances of the child's life. There is no rule as to the duration of the residence. It's possible, for example, to acquire habitual residence in a single day. However, the deeper the child's integration into the old state, probably the slower his or her integration into the new state. The greater the adult pre-planning of the move to include arrangements for the child's day-to-day life and care, probably the faster the child's integration. Similarly, where all the central members of the family have moved, possibly the faster the integration takes place. Where some central members of the child's family remain in the old state, representing a continuing link with the old state, the slower the rate of reintegration. So it really is how long is a piece of string when it comes to habitual residence? And it is a factual argument that you're going to have to make. But those are some really helpful principles when looking at what exactly constitutes habitual residence. And the judge then goes on to look at the facts of this particular case. And this is where it gets quite interesting. So the parties are married in April 2016 in Pakistan. They are both Pakistani nationals, although the mother has links to Italy. Her father, I think, is referenced as an Italian national in the judgment. But they marry in Pakistan, April 2016. The following year, the mother becomes pregnant with the child, S. Shortly after becoming pregnant, she travels to Italy to stay with her parents. So her parents are living in Pakistan. At the moment, sorry, at the time of judgment, she's living in Greater Manchester. But her parents are living in Italy, but she is Pakistani, if you're all following. So they're in Pakistan. Mum's pregnant with S. She travels to Italy shortly after the birth to stay with her parents. It's the father's case that the mother told him she wanted to be close to her own mother during her pregnancy. Again, not surprising. On this basis, he says that he agreed. The child was therefore born in Italy. 
The father's case is that he was unable to travel to Italy to be there for the birth as he did not have a visa. It's part of the mother's case, which is denied that the father was violent to her from an early stage in the marriage. Now that's mentioned a lot in the judgment, but to skip to the end of the book, the court makes no findings because it chooses not to, as in it doesn't hear evidence about the allegations. So there's no finding either way about whether or not this is true. So any reference to domestic violence, please remember, is disputed by the father, advanced by the mother and not resolved by the court. So Charles in Italy, having been born in early 2018, father's unable to travel. In around May 2018, mum returns to Pakistan with the baby and stays there until August 2018 with the father. So they're there May to August 2018 together. Mum then says, I want to go back to Italy. I need to be with my parents. I haven't seen them in a while. Father says he wasn't very happy about this, but he did consent to this holiday. And on this occasion, mum stays there for around nine to ten months. So she's there for a long period of time with her mother and father, as is the baby. Father contends that he made regular requests for the baby to be returned to Pakistan. Mother and child return to Pakistan from Italy in 2019, and all three of them are living together as a family from this point, approximately 13 to 15 months between the time that mum left back to Italy. In May 2020, there is some kind of disputed violent, potentially violent incident, and mum leaves again to Italy. Father again says that he agreed to this holiday particularly, but shortly after she arrived in Italy, she left to go to England telling the father she wasn't coming back and that he would never see the child again. And that amounts to the wrongful retention. Are you with me so far, Malika? Indeed. Great. So child is now in England and has been since October 2020, when mum telephoned dad and told him she'd be staying in England. He then, there's some delays in launching his application. He has delays in legal aid, allegedly some problems. Anyway, he makes his application October 21, and this is the application before the court. So that's the factual background. Now, thinking back to habitual residence, what the court has to do is determine where the child was habitually resident and when, in order to determine if it's appropriate to summarily return the child to Pakistan. Because if the child was never habitually resident in Pakistan, the court may think it's more appropriate to return the child to, for example, Italy, or keep the child in England. So the court goes through this factual process of looking at where the child is habitually resident and where and why. And it concludes that at the time of the removal from Pakistan to Italy, and therefore the subsequent removal from Italy to England, the child was habitually resident in Pakistan. And therefore, the child has a welfare interest in returning to Pakistan for a full welfare evaluation. And the court orders the summary return of the child. Now, there's another interesting strand to this judgment which is that the mother made it very clear and Kafkas was very concerned about mother's attitude because mother made it very clear that she did not want the father to have a relationship with the child. So the father's having video contact with the baby, but she's four and a half. Obviously, we all know video contact is difficult for children of that age. And the video contact's not going very well. Mum's said a few things in the background that aren't particularly supportive. And Kafkas are worried about mum's ability to support contact, but they say generally her parenting is good and they're not worried enough to consider any action at this stage. Now, this is a child who's inevitably wholly dependent on their mother to meet all of their needs, but the Kafkas officer had real concerns that mother was not seeking to promote the child's relationship with the father. Mother reported that the child, for example, refuses to speak to the father, bear in mind this child is four and a half. Kafkas officer's professional view is that the child yearns for a relationship with her father. She remembers living with him, and she's very excited to speak to him when she gets to. And the geographical distance between the child and the father means that he may never be able to have a proper relationship with the child if the mother is not 
coming back to Pakistan regularly. And the evidence is that this is not a mother who can support that contact in any meaningful way. So that also went into the determination of the court in deciding whether or not to order a summary return under the inherent jurisdiction of the child, which is exactly what they ended up doing. The Kafkas officer, there's quite an interesting paragraph, paragraph 118 is a very long judgment, like all of mine are apparently. In the course of her oral evidence, the Kafkas officer told the court in answer to questions put on behalf of the father about her concerns, having seen the video clips of his contact with the child, including why mother chose to remain in the room. She agreed that the father had tried his best. She agreed that there was no overt encouragement of contact by mother, but in a measured way also accepted that she did not know what may have been said before or after the contact. She identified the crux of this aspect of the case is why the child responds to father in the way indicated, which is that sometimes she's worried about contact. So interesting, both in terms of uh, parents who don't support contact in any meaningful way, judgment, but also international law, inherent jurisdiction and habitual residence. So ultimately, the court decides that it is in this child's interests to return to Pakistan. The court says each of the parents is capable. As indicated already, apart from promoting contact with the father, there are no issues with mother as a parent in light of the findings that the court has been able to make. The same point applies to the father. No issue has been raised about members of either side of the child's extended family as part of her family support network. I digress to note that the father suggests that the maternal grandparents may have exerted a malign influence in terms of bringing about the mother's removal. However, there is insufficient evidence to make findings in this regard. I must also ensure that I apply all the relevant principles that are relevant to the determination of this application from established case law. I also confirm the following. I'm satisfied there are sufficient findings within my judgment to make an order for a turn. I have, in fact, made a determination as to the child's habitual residence and concluded that it had not changed from Pakistan at the date of the father's application. However, even if that determination is wrong, I'm satisfied that the child lived in Pakistan for significant earlier periods in her life and has always lived in a de facto Pakistani home, wherever geographically she has been resident, which is an interesting point. D, I'm further satisfied that the child is most closely connected with Pakistan in terms of culture, language and religion. I specifically remind myself that the most that can be said in relation to this aspect in any event is that it may be convenient to start from the proposition that it's likely to be better for a child to return to the home country. The case against a return in this case has, in my judgment, limited merits. I am satisfied there has been sufficient evaluation of the child's welfare needs to determine this application, although he emphasises that it's a summary judgment, not a full welfare evaluation. And I am satisfied that the proposed practical arrangements on return will provide a sufficiently soft landing for the mother and the child in Pakistan. I have allowed oral evidence by the parties, which in my judgment helped to inform the court's determination. And the court's determination has also been informed in part by the evidence of the Kafkas officer. I'm satisfied there will be appropriate assessment of the child's welfare needs in Pakistan, which will be applied and prioritised in informing the Pakistani court's decisions about her future. And I'm specifically satisfied that the mother will be able to apply in the relevant Pakistani court for permission to return with the child to England. That's confirmed by a Pakistani lawyer who was an expert in the case, which you need if you're doing these cases. I'm also specifically remind myself that the mother is a bright, well-educated and articulate young woman who is already engaging with the benefit of legal representation in other family proceedings involving the father in Pakistan. I'm satisfied that she will have effective access to justice in Pakistan, brackets, sadly, unlike some other women there. Accordingly, I've reached the conclusion that I should make a summary order for the child's return to Pakistan. So interesting case, and I would urge you to read it if any of those things that it highlights are of interest to you. What have you got this week? I have a case that's in a totally different category of cases to what you have just talked about so it should be a nice contrast for our listeners and it's a case called FNM number three 2022 I'll put the citation in the show notes and it's from a few months ago because I was struggling to find anything that really caught my attention in the last month or so 
And it's a judgment from Her Honor Judge Davies, Judge Davies in Peterborough, not Judge Davies in Stoke for any practitioners. And it concerned two kids who are 13 and 10. And very sadly, the litigation had first begun about seven or eight years earlier, which is pretty bleak. Final orders were made in June 2021, with the court directing that the children move from living with their mum to living with their dad, which our listeners will know from our discussion about transfers of residence in the past is something of a nuclear option, an option that the court tends to quite rarely exercise, which gives us an idea of how dire the circumstances were in this particular case. The court was assisted in coming to that decision by an expert report from an expert called Melanie Gill. That was received in October 2020, and it concluded that the mother was alienating the children from their father. The judge concluded at the final hearing that the mother had alienated the children, not only based on Melanie Gill's expert report, but also the evidence of the children's guardian who'd applied her own CAFCAS parental alienation toolkit and done her own analysis and come to the same conclusions and also the judge's own findings about the mother's credibility after hearing her evidence in court. Now, at the time of this judgment that I'm about to go into, the children were living with their dad. They were, by all accounts, doing well. And happily, they were spending regular time with their mum at the weekends and in the holidays. So things had gone on far better than they had been earlier on. Mother initially applied for permission to appeal the final decision, and that was dismissed, and it was considered totally without merit. And as part of that application for permission to appeal, she raised issues about Melanie Gill's qualifications and expertise. And the High Court judge who was dealing with that application concluded, quote, the complaints made by the mother about the expert are not sustainable. She was jointly appointed in March 2020, and no appeal against her appointment was made. She produced reports and gave oral evidence which was challenged. Her expertise was firmly placed in the arena by the mother. It was open to the judge to accept her evidence and to find that she was an impressive witness. Further, her evidence was only one part of the totality of the evidence which the judge considered. So mother then applied for the main hearing to be reopened and for there to be a rehearing on the basis that Melanie Gill was not appropriately qualified and too much weight was attached to her report. And that application is what this judgment is about. And that was opposed by the father and by the children's guardian. Now, there are five elements to the mother's application, which the judge sets out. One, the expert was not and is not qualified to provide expert psychological evidence. Two, she fails to satisfy the procedural requirements of practice direction 25. Three, her conduct fell short of the standard to be expected of a court appointed expert. Four, her evidence has impacted on the rest of the evidence in the case, including the evidence given by the mother and the guardian. And finally, five, the case therefore needs a rehearing. The judge refers to the starting point in terms of the law is in the case of Re-E from 2019, where Lord Justice Jackson set out a three-stage test to be applied when considering the approach to be taken where there's new evidence and we're considering whether or not to have an appeal or an application for a rehearing. And this is a paragraph 10 of this judgment. First, the court must consider whether it will permit any reconsideration of the earlier finding. If it's willing to do so, the second stage determines the extent of the investigation and the evidence that will be considered. And the third stage is the hearing of the review itself. And the judge goes on to say, in paragraph 50, Lord Justice Jackson said, a court faced with an application to reopen a previous finding of fact should approach matters in this way. One, 
it should remind itself at the outset that the context for its decision is a balancing of important considerations of public policy favoring finality of litigation on the one hand and soundly based welfare decisions on the other. Two, it should weigh up all relevant matters. These will include the need to put scarce resources to good use, the effect of delay on the child, the importance of establishing the truth, the nature and significance of the findings themselves and the quality and relevance of the further evidence. And three, above all, the court is bound to want to consider whether there is any reason to think that a rehearing of the issue will result in a different finding from that in the earlier trial. There must be solid grounds for believing that the earlier findings require revisiting. So that's the legal framework. The judge also refers to various documents that have come out recently, which we may have talked about on the podcast. I'm not sure. I know I've recommended a BBC analysis podcast on parental alienation, which goes into this issue, which is in effect because of a growing concern about unregulated experts giving expert evidence in family proceedings. That's drawn comment from lots of different sources, including the president of the family division, the Family Justice Council, the British Psychological Society, and the Association of Clinical Psychologists. You may be aware, some of our listeners, I know Maddie will definitely be aware, that in December 2021, the Association of Clinical Psychologists issued a statement called the Protection of the Public in the Family Courts. And in that, they raised concerns that they were aware of several family cases in which, and they put quotes around this, psychological experts in quotation marks who are not HCPC registered have suggested inappropriate diagnoses and made recommendations for children to be removed from their mothers based on these diagnoses. And the ACP says that it wishes to support those instructing experts for the courts to understand the importance of using HCPC registered practitioner psychologists. And more broadly, they are campaigning for legislation to protect the term psychologist. So the term psychologist at the moment isn't a protected term and it isn't restricted only to practitioner psychologists who are regulated by the HCPC. So for clarity, Melanie Gill, refers to herself as a psychologist. I've looked that up. I've looked on her LinkedIn and she refers to herself as a highly specialized psychologist. However, as I understand it, she is not registered with the HCPC. So how does the judge deal with this? Well, what the judge notes is that in appropriate cases, it is open to the family court to appoint someone who calls themselves a psychologist, but who doesn't have chartered membership of the British Psychological Society or who's not registered with the HCPC. And she refers specifically to the guidance from the Family Justice Council and the British Psychological Society, which was issued in May this year, where they say it remains at the discretion of the court to appoint individuals who are not eligible for chartered membership of the BPS or qualify for registration with the HCPC, but the court should determine that the person has relevant psychological knowledge or training. The judge goes on to say whether or not this is a good thing isn't for me to determine but she effectively notes that it is within the powers of the court to appoint someone who is not HCPC registered, who is referring to themselves as a psychologist, provided they have the appropriate knowledge and expertise to be able to assist the court. Insofar as Melanie Gill is concerned, the difficulty the mother came up with in this case was that Melanie Gill was a jointly instructed expert. So all the parties and the court had approved her CV and considered that she had the appropriate expertise to comment. She followed the instructions that were asked of her. Her recommendations were largely accepted by the court. The court didn't agree with all of her recommendations. And so the judge dismisses the mother's application. And she gives a number of reasons for this. And she says, look, this litigation has been going on for far too long. 
the resources of the parties and of the court have taken up far too much time for many, many years. The children won't be benefited by reopening the case. They're doing well. Happily, they have a relationship with both parents. As it turned out, the decision of the court ended up benefiting them. New evidence hasn't come to light, and there is no reason to think that a rehearing would result in a different finding to what was originally found. One final interesting issue was that there was a journalist present, Hannah Summers, who wanted to report details of the case, including the identity of the expert. The judge effectively concluded there's no reason that couldn't be disclosed. There was no criticism of Melanie Gill in this case. And Hannah Summers gave her reassurance to the court that she would make very clear in her reporting that no findings were made against Melanie Gill. Hannah Summers' article is now up on The Guardian, and I will link it because I think it's a very interesting accompanying read to the case itself. But also interestingly, on my little detective work here, I looked up Melanie Gill and her LinkedIn profile says, I'm a highly specialized psychologist working in private, public and criminal law. I specialize in assessment only using attachment science and formulation as the basis for my work. And this is where it gets juicy. This is in her LinkedIn description. She writes, unfortunately, a great deal of inaccurate and misleading information about me and my work is being presented in the media and across specific Google groups. It is part of a movement to discredit the construct of parental alienation and target certain professionals whose work in this area is poorly understood, as are the cases, except from a single perspective in which the needs of children affected by complex and negative family dynamics are ignored. She then ends up linking to this very case. So this case brings into light the simmering tensions about regulation of experts in family proceedings. I think it's obvious that we need some very clear guidance and not these sort of bits and pieces that are coming from various speeches by the president of the family division, the memorandum on experts, guidance from the FJC, from ACP. What we need is, is clear, unambiguous guidance about using experts in family proceedings who are not regulated by the HCPC, who aren't chartered members of the BPS. The judge doesn't seek to offer any guidance about that in this case or about what we do about that moving forward. But what she effectively says that the way this expert in this particular case gave her evidence that could be safely relied upon and there were no grounds for rehearing this matter. What do you think, Maddie? I think it's really interesting. I mean, Malvika and I had a conversation before we recorded about whether or not she should do this case. And actually, I'm glad you did, because I think it's really interesting and helpful. The definition of expert in family proceedings is just someone who has the relevant expertise and it comes from a recognised body of other work or something similar. So, you know, it doesn't need to be a doctor. It doesn't need to be someone who's regulated. I think there is an argument, potentially, that that could be changed. But there's also, you know, psychologists, particularly and psychiatrists, are not one particular school of thought. A lot of them are trained in different ways that you have Jungian people, you have Bowlby people, you have all kinds of different schools of thought when it comes to psychology. Often they tell you on their CVs what school of thought they are, but it makes a huge difference to how they analyze people and children. And often, I'm afraid, and I, I think I've said this before, it comes down to doing your homework if you're challenging their evidence, is read other schools of thought and put it to them if you think that they're not good enough and you don't think that they know what they're talking about or they should be regulated or they've done something wrong you have the opportunity to challenge them challenge them their conclusions are unchallengeable in the cases that I see but you know if you've got a complex case that's relying solely on the opinion of an expert which doesn't sound like this case did anyway but you do sometimes get them particularly in parental alienation which is difficult to define in lots of cases anyway 
find some other people who've written about parental alienation and put that to them in the way that you would a consultant radiologist or a forensic pathologist or whatever it might be. So yeah, I think it's it's a helpful reminder that we've got a job to do as well. And also jointly instructed experts, you have an opportunity to say no, you have an opportunity to challenge them. It's rather unattractive to come in late in the day and say that you don't like what they said. Yeah, it's something that's going to be the subject of a lot more discussion and a lot more case law because there's no easy answer to it. I know that I think it was Dr. Jamie Craig in the parental alienation episode on BBC analysis who raised his concerns about, from an accountability perspective, what the worry might be by allowing unregulated, in quotation mark, experts to give expert evidence. But I don't know if I know enough about the science and enough about the modes of regulation to be able to say, well, the only people who are qualified to give expert evidence are these particular subcategories of people. But it is one of these cases that just brings into into stark relief these tensions and these rub points that we're going to have to be confronting head on in the next couple of years. Yeah, I think eyes peeled. I think we might have to revisit this one. Also, it's funny that it's called FNM number three. I thought it was a continuation of the other FNM, the one and two that we've already done, but thankfully not. Moving on to recommendations for the week, I've got one that you sent me actually, which is very helpful and interesting. And this is written evidence from Nagalro, which is N-A-G-A-L-R-O, who is, of course, the Association of Children's Guardians, Family Court Advisors, and Independent Social Workers, giving evidence to the House of Lords Select Committee on Children and Families Act 2014 on this question. What has been the effect of the requirement to consider ethnicity, religion, race, culture, and language in England when placing a child for adoption? Are any further legislative or other measures needed to address disparities? And Nagaro say that they're very concerned about the impact on black children of the repeal of section 15, which was about um, religious persuasion, racial origin, cultural and linguistic background back in 2014 by the Children and Families Act. And they set out their views about what they think is a lack of due consideration to black and minority ethnic children's religious and cultural backgrounds when placing them for adoption. It's really, really interesting. Thank you for the link, Malfka. And I, I really would encourage you all to read it. The matching process is something that I think a lot of people find very, very opaque. It's something that I don't even know a lot about, and I do adoption cases weekly. It's very opaque. It's something the local authority really do keep to themselves, the agency decision maker and all of that sort of thing have always been quite opaque. And I think it's important for us as lawyers working within the system and for social workers and guardians and independent social workers and CAFCAS officers and everyone else to remember that there are children at the end of this who will have a particular experience of life due to their own diversities and that needs to be taken into account and it's something that I think is not necessarily taken to the the repeal of of section 15 was an interesting choice and it may well be that it's something the government are now reconsidering but worth a read for sure. Yeah, I have a few recommendations. I will pick my favourite first, which is a podcast series called Can I Tell You a Secret, which is from The Guardian. Maddie's gasping at me right now, but I don't know why. That was going to be mine. (laughs) Well, too bad. I got there first. You snooze, you lose. And the podcast series looks at a, a guy called Matthew Hardy, who is a stalker who created fake profiles through which he would message lots of women and create rumors about them, spread false information about them, send them messages that they found threatening, 
he would spread rumors about infidelity, breaking up relationships. He would get hold of intimate images and, and send them on to someone's boss, that kind of thing. Really distressing behavior over an extremely long period of time. And in January 2022, he was sentenced to nine years. Spoiler alert, by the way, because they really build up to what the outcome of that criminal hearing is. And I thought he was going to get sentenced to a couple of months or get a slap on the wrist. Nine years for five counts of stalking. And I'm told, I don't know if this is correct, I'm told by the podcast that the average is under 17 months. So there are a couple of interesting aspects to this series. One is that it looks at whether or not the police fail to the victims by not taking things seriously much sooner. It's this common disconnect between physical harm and emotional harm and people taking the former far more seriously than they take the latter, when the latter can be just as destructive over a much longer period of time. And it's far more insidious and it's far more difficult to pin down and to take action against. And another interesting aspect of it is that it explores him being autistic. And I know that they, the podcasters, worked with I can't remember who it is. It could have been the National Autistic Society. It could have been someone else, Advocates for Autism or something. I'll find out and I'll put it in the show notes. But they received a lot of guidance about this issue because it kind of looks at to what extent could his autism be used as mitigation because it was used in mitigation by his defence counsel during sentencing. And to what extent can that be used to excuse in quotation marks his behavior and the podcast looks at more broadly at the treatment of autistic people within the criminal justice system it's very nuanced it doesn't seek to justify what he did and it doesn't make generalizations about autistic people or how autism manifests in different people and it goes to some pains to emphasize that the vast majority of autistic people are not to risks in the same way that this man was but it I think it was a really sensitive exploration of his autism and to what extent that should have been taken into account in his treatment by the criminal justice system. So there's loads and loads of dimensions to it. And it's also just really interesting. There's one particular complainant who used to be a paralegal and she starts to put together this file of evidence. She very carefully catalogues every single thing that he's done to her and then drops it on the police's desk. And I, I remember thinking that, God, that is such a lawyer thing <laughs> to do. And it's at that stage where it seems that the police officers start to actually take it seriously because they see the reach of this behavior, because it's extraordinary how many people he contacted, how many lives he disrupted, and nothing was done for a really long time. So it's such a good series. I binged it while I was doing my house chores the other day, so would recommend. No, it's so you have to listen to it. I'm obsessed with it. That girl who did the bundle, Leah, Queen, I'm obsessed with her. She's so smart and cool. All the victims are so, so eloquent and so almost sympathetic in a way to him because they really do understand that he's this very, very withdrawn, very isolated person who doesn't really understand how the world works. And it, they're so sensitive, but also very, very angry and upset. And there's one bit I remember that really stuck with me about the harm where one of the girls he had imitated her on Facebook and sent intimate images of herself that he had hacked to her boss and had had essentially an online sexual relationship with her own boss for months without this girl knowing that she was in this relationship with this man, which is just one of the most terrifying things I can possibly imagine. And he sort of eventually said to her, like, why don't we go for a drink when she was at work? And she was like, what? You know, and imagine someone knowing that about you that you're in a professional relationship with. I just can't imagine anything more intrusive or degrading, to be honest. And that kind of thing, I think, is so 
sensitively handled. And I love The Guardian and the way that they handle the autistic element to it is really, really good. And they ask that question of all of the people they interview that are we handling this appropriately? Is this the right way to talk about it? They they talk to autism advocates as well. And yeah, it's it's really well done and I'd really, really would recommend it. It's a it's a really good podcast. Yeah. And one of the things I found really sad is one of the girls was an influencer and she felt that in a sense she was being victim blamed for putting herself out on the internet and that her own family turned against her and effectively said that well this is your own fault for putting yourself out there like that you know putting pictures of yourself in a bikini on Instagram and in a sense you were asking for it and there are just so many dimensions to it that you will have so much to talk about with your friends afterwards over drinks and loads to unpack so that's my first recommendation. My second one, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, actually forgot to ever talk about it, which is prima facie or prima facie or however you might pronounce it. I did see this as sold out on the West End, I'm pretty sure, with Jodie Comer, the one woman show, but it is playing at various cinemas through National Theatre Live. And so I had to trek to Litchfield to go see it because it's sold out in Leicester where I am. But it's brilliant, as you would expect from Jodie Comer. It unpacks, if you don't know what it's about, it's effectively about a criminal barrister who does sex cases herself and who ends up being raped by a colleague in Chambers. And it's about the process of her going through the criminal justice system and of the trauma and how that affects her recall of what happened and how she feels that it in effect the criminal justice system failed her. And it asks some very difficult questions. I don't know if it necessarily answers them. I will say that. I mean, what it does explore is okay, we know that trauma affects women's recall of how things have happened. So is the current system working? And what it suggests is no, it's not working. But it doesn't really go the next step to say, this is how it should work. This is what we can do. This is how we address it. But that's the million dollar question. I mean, if we knew that, then then probably there'd be no need for the play because we'd be on it with the Law Commission. We'd be making those changes right now. But that's the eternal question we're asking ourselves when we're dealing with sex cases in both the family and the criminal courts is how do you balance a complainant reliving trauma, the worst trauma of their lives, against fairness and against procedural justice, how do you possibly strike the right balance? Somewhere we're going to fall down, and I don't think we quite struck the right balance yet, and I don't know how we will, and it's something we're probably going to grapple with throughout the rest of our careers, but it's really good to see it. And then I also went to a lunchtime talk earlier this week by the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory, who do some brilliant lunchtime talks, and they did a lunchtime talk with Dr. Kate Helene. You might remember Dr. Helene from season two, episode two, which was about Maddie's case of Reed W. And I think it was in front of Mr. Justice Hayden. And he referred to the report that she had prepared as a landmark report. And the talk that she gave with the NFJO was along similar lines. And it was about how ordinary human reactions to extraordinary circumstances can be interpreted. And that's within the specific context of family proceedings, within that care proceedings. So she was talking about how parents in particular, their responses to the very normal stress of being in family proceedings can result in certain perfectly natural behaviours, which are then potentially misinterpreted. And she said this, and I just, I thought it was so well articulated. And what she says is that the court works not unusually on the basis of a diagnostic model of human distress. What happens is that parents and families end up before the court because they have problems they can't solve themselves. And the starting point for the court is there must be something wrong with the family or the parent to end up in this position. And that takes us in problematic directions. The kinds of questions I am asked are essentially, 
what's wrong with this parent and how does it affect their parenting? My role isn't in diagnosis and I don't think in terms of what's wrong with someone, but why is it that this person is in the predicament we're in? The why almost always is to do with trauma and stress. Being in court is inherently stressful and the situations that have taken them into court are almost always to do with stress and the court exacerbates it. And she goes on to talk about what it is that we do when we're stressed and how we try and establish a sense of control in circumstances which aren't within our control and how that can make us rigid and that can make us stop taking in information and stop taking on board advice that we may have otherwise taken on board in different circumstances. And effectively what she's encouraging us to do is to work more collaboratively and to understand why it is that people behave in certain ways and to try and resist the polarization that develops in family proceedings which creates division and isn't helpful at all to actually coming up with outcomes that benefit the family long term. So that's really good. And that is now should now be up on the NFJO's YouTube page, which I will link. And my final one, I'm almost done, is that the National Justice Museum, which I'm a big advocate of, I think it's a Midlands gem, is running an event called We Wish You a Merry Murder between the 25th of November and the 17th of December. Now, I haven't done this particular event, but I have done a murder mystery event with the National Justice Museum called Cocktails and Crime. This one's a bit more expensive. It's a $47.99 ticket, and it includes a three-course meal. But I just think that they are so much fun. They are. It, it is a murder mystery event. You have tons of other people there. You're all trying to work collaboratively to work out who it is that's actually committed the murder. And it's just a really fun interesting engaging take on crime and exploring crime and I just think the National Justice Museum is so good and they run such interesting exhibitions um, and events for kids and adults alike so if you haven't been there not only is Nottingham a great city that museum is excellent so check that out and I will put the link to the event in the show notes okay that is I promise that is me I have no tweets of the week so I took them all up in the recommendations yeah too busy going to murder mystery parties to be on Twitter I have just one this week, which is not anything to do with family law, but I saw it and I couldn't ignore it. So I wanted to talk about it. It's from a barrister at Doughty Street who has an Irish name that I'm so sorry, I don't know how to pronounce, but you'll know who I mean. It's Calvin Gallagher, Casey. I'm so sorry, that is a butcher of your name, but we'll put your proper name in the show notes so everyone can find this tweet. But it was tweeted yesterday after the London Marathon and it says this Anusha Ashuri 68 ran the London Marathon in his Evan uniform when he was unlawfully imprisoned in Iran for five years a victim of vile hostage diplomacy he ran in circles in his tiny cell he ran yesterday to honor Iran's prisoners women and freedom what an incredible man and I just thought it would be a good opportunity for us to pay tribute to women in Iran at the moment and also to celebrate all of the extremely brave women who are still there and still fighting the good fight, solidarity with them as ever. And I thought that was a really beautiful story about this guy who ran the London Marathon in his prisoner's uniform. So go and have a look at that. The photo is below the tweet. It's really sweet. And well done to him for finishing the London Marathon. Yes, and thank you, Keelan, for your tweet as well. <laughs> thank you, Keelan. Oh, so I'm sorry. pretty sure it's Keelan, but if it's not, we're going to find out and we're going to get slagged off by Irish Twitter. 100%. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you in a couple of weeks for the next episode. Thank you so much. Don't forget to vote for us.